Oh, Father, we are so grateful for Christ being born, for this tangible reminder of your love for us and for your desire to save us from our sins. We are grateful, Lord, for Christ. And we pray that as we now transition from the singing from the worship through singing uh, into the worship through the preaching of your word, the hearing of your word, that you, O oh Lord, would be honored, that you, O oh Lord, would be glorified. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning to all of you, and welcome to San Francisco Bible Church, and of course, Merry Christmas. In our sermon this morning, we're going to continue on in our study in the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews and turn to chapter 11. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll have one of the ushers uh, find you a Bible, and uh, they'll they'll grab one for you, and uh, you can um, follow along. Um, And then also, additionally, if you guys would like a handout, you can go to our bulletin and click on the Word document in the sermon outline. Uh, The PDF, for whatever reason, is not working. But if you go to the Word document, you can have the handout for this morning. Um, Well, since many of you know from last week's message, we have a lot to get through in this morning's text. Uh, So we're going to read the passage as we go along in the message this morning. And in some cases, I might even have the slide up, and I'm just going to talk about it because we just don't have time. Um, But... Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of his word this morning before we begin. Our Lord, we are grateful to you for everything that you have given to us. And as we reflect on your faithfulness to us and the examples of faith in you throughout the ages, we pray that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen our faith, and that you would help us to love you more as a result of it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would honor yourself, and that you would make yourself mighty in our eyes. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have grown up in the church, or you've been around church people during this Christmas time, you've likely heard the saying, Jesus is the reason for the season. Now, many people have been keen to point out that we don't know exactly when Jesus was born and that celebrating his birth during this time of year was done to counter the pagan celebrations of winter solstice. But this doesn't change the fact that Christmas, December 25th, has been designated as the time of year when Christians around the world celebrate the birth of Christ. And as a result, for many people around the world, this time of year is where faith, sometimes just faith in general, takes center stage. But what we want to consider today as we approach our study in Hebrews 11 is the enduring nature of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How faith is not something we have when it's convenient, when we are hurting and we have nowhere left to turn, or when it is simply during this particular time of year. Rather, faith in Christ is something that we ought to have at all times of the year. It is easy, right, to celebrate Christ's birth every year at this time. 
But it is far more difficult to have faith in him during the rest of the year, especially when, at least to us, it might not seem as if there are any compelling reasons to continue to worship Christ or celebrate him outside of the major holidays. But what have we learned from the author of Hebrews? Well, in case you have not been with us or you've forgotten, in Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews has established for us the superiority of Christ's sacrifice on the cross compared to the old system of animal sacrifices, which only temporarily covered sins. Because his death actually does the job of accomplishing salvation, I mean, forgiveness of sins, salvation, yes, right, and also Uh, It allows for us to have full access to God. We have three appropriate reasons to worship God, right? We have three appropriate, sorry, responses, three appropriate responses to worship God. Um, We must draw near to God with with a sincere heart. We must hold fast the confession of our hope. And we must consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds by assembling together. The ones who truly have this faith in God that changes lives are those who do not shrink back when the going gets tough. Instead, they endure in their faith. After all, God has said that his righteous ones are the ones who will live by faith. In last week's message, Pastor Theo reminded us that faith is trust in who God is. And that faith in God, in turn, leads to action. It leads to an active response to God on our part. It leads to an active response to Christ on our part. Because Christ, not us, is the hero of our faith. He is the one who broke into history to save us. And if we will truly rely on him, he will be the one who gets us home. So, while we commonly think of Hebrews 11 as the hall of fame of the faithful, what we will find in our study this morning is that this chapter is really about the hall of fame of faith, faith in God. It is meant to help us see that the righteous can live by faith in God through the examples of how others have lived out their faith in God. And so this morning, we are going to see three reasons why believers can persevere in their faith in Christ. Three reasons why believers can persevere in their faith in Christ. The first reason is because faith in Christ pleases God. The second reason why we can persevere is because faith fuels obedient endurance. And the third reason why believers can persevere in their faith is because faith ultimately overcomes. Let's look at that first reason why we can persevere in our faith. Faith in Christ pleases God. Now, I know that many of you know that we covered verses 1 and 2 last week, and I was supposed to cover the rest of the chapter, right? 38. But I'm going to reclaim those two verses, so we're going through 40. Uh, But before we launch into the rest of the chapter, I want to quickly review for us what faith is like by looking at the substance of faith. The substance of faith. Essentially, what we are asking when we are talking about the substance of faith is, what is faith made of? What is faith made of? That's what we're asking when we're talking about the substance of faith. And as we learned last week, saving faith 
is not just believing in something in general. Because otherwise, if that was the case, I could have faith that we are going to have Chinese buns tomorrow during our Christmas Day service, and that act of faith will save me. Obviously, that doesn't save me. And, well, yes, we will have Chinese buns tomorrow morning. Uh, if you, that can entice you to come out at 9.30 in the morning to, uh, before you rush off to your Christmas celebrations. But that act of faith, believing simply that we're going to have something for breakfast, does not save me, right? That doesn't save me. Faith is made up of complete trust in God. Complete trust in what he has said and promised. A willingness to take him at his word and act upon it. And the most fundamental demonstration of such a faith is found in verse 3 of Hebrews 11. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Before we even get to the examples of people who had faith in God, the kind of faith that we ought to have in God is demonstrated through our understanding of creation. It is by faith that we believe that God created the worlds, a.k.a. the whole universe, through his very word so that what we see around us with our eyes is not made out of the very things God creates. And so if I could say that a different way, it's not as if God existed just kind of in a place and then he had all sorts of raw materials surrounding him and he decided one day because he was bored, hey, I'm just going to put stuff together, I'm going to create things. It's not like he found the lumberyard. It's not like he found the depository where all the mountains are are going to be carved from. He didn't do that. Because if that was the case, what we see is from stuff that was already made. But what does the text say? The worlds were prepared by the word of God so that that which is seen was made out of things that were not made out of things that are visible. In other words, he spoke and it was. He spoke and it became. The only way that we can truly please God is by a faith that believes that, or a similar faith that believes that. A kind of faith that completely takes him at his word when he said that he instantly created everything out of nothing. Not that, oh, maybe he got it started, and you know, then he kind of took his hands off the wheel and everything else kind of formed on its own. Right? But no, that he said it, and it became real. All right, that's a tremendous amount of faith. Now, where do we see such a faith demonstrated in history? Well, the author now provides us with some early examples of faith in God. And uh, the first early example of faith in God is Abel. Abel, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was approved as being righteous, God approving his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. When we first learn of Abel's sacrifice or offering to God in Genesis, not much is told to us in terms of what God instructed Cain and Abel to give. Cain 
offered an offering of produce, while Abel offered the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And after we see what was offered, Moses tells us that God had regard for Abel's offering, but had no regard for Cain's. And what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he helps us see that there actually was a clear standard that God had given them previously regarding what was to be offered. Abel met it. Cain did not. And in faith, Abel provided the appropriate offering, which is why God approved of Abel, which is why God considered Abel as righteous, because Abel heard, Abel listened, Abel obeyed. Now, Cain did unjustly murder his brother afterwards, but the testimony of Abel allows him to continue to speak by being an example of what people who believe in God do in response to his commands, even to this day. And in that sense, he still speaks. That brings us to the second early example of faith in God, and that is found in Enoch. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For prior to being taken up, he was approved as being pleasing to God. Enoch was another Old Testament saint, and he is often remembered for the fact that he never died. He was approved as being pleasing to God because of his faith in God. And so, when the time came, God brought Enoch straight up to heaven. No death required. And that's kind of what we all want, right? You get saved, and then you don't have to worry about dying. You just go straight to heaven and be with God. Right? That would be great. That's not what happens, unfortunately. Right? Many of us wish that we could be like Enoch, but the fact of the matter is Enoch was the only one who goes straight into the presence of God when the time is right. And God doesn't explain why, nor does he give any hints as to why Enoch gets this privilege and not any of us. But the author of Hebrews wants us to understand an important point through Enoch, that faith is crucial to please God. Faith is crucial to please God. For the author's original audience, who were tempted to abandon faith in Christ to return to Judaism, the repeated call to them has been to not abandon their faith in Christ because, well, Judaism is more comfortable if they've truly believed in Christ, if they truly believe that he actually can save them from their sins, then there's no going back. Verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It is only through faith that those who claim to love God are able to please God. And the idea is simply this. If you want to be like Abel and Enoch, and you want to be pleasing to the Lord, then you have to take him at his word. You have to remember that faith in Christ, it's not nothing. It's everything. It gets you all the way home to God, because God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so if you place your faith in Christ, if you live in faith in Christ, you will not live your life in vain. Your faith in Christ, it's not in vain. And so for those tempted to give up 
on their faith in Christ because it just doesn't seem worth it. Having God's approval, knowing God will ultimately reward you when you believe in him and trust in him. These are the reminders that we need that we can endure no matter what comes our way. It pleases God when we trust in Christ because when we trust in Christ, we trust in God and we're demonstrating faith. So don't replace Christ with that which promised satisfaction but will ultimately leave you wanting and with nothing. Don't replace Christ with that which promises satisfaction but will ultimately leave you wanting and with nothing. It's like chewing juicy fruit. Right? It tastes amazing in the beginning, and then as time goes on, it's rancid in your mouth, and you just want to spit that gum out. Right? Satisfying for the moment, but in the long run, it's abhorrent. I know that's a strong word, but it's abhorrent. Right? It's disgusting. Or, you know, on the other hand, it'd be like when you're super hungry, and there's that bag of chips right there. And you're like, oh, that, that'll do it, right? That'll satisfy. And you eat the bag of chips, and then you realize, oh, no, I'm still hungry. I need real food. Don't satisfy yourself with the things that look like they will provide satisfaction, but will ultimately leave you wanting. Christ's death and resurrection saves us from all of our sins. It is not just good enough to take care of us at the moment of salvation, but it is good enough and it is sufficient to transform us to be like him for the entirety of our lifetimes. It will be good enough to bring us all the way home to God. And that's the reason why you can endure when you please him in faith. The second reason why believers can persevere in their faith in Christ is because faith fuels obedient endurance. Faith fuels obedient endurance. As we go through this life, there will be many things that will tempt us to be distracted in our faith. Some of them are good things, but there are a lot of things out there that will distract us that are also objectively bad things. And we can be tempted to make compromises here and there so that We don't give God our full trust and loyalty. But the true nature of faith in God makes it clear that trusting in God is not just a one-time act in life followed by a lifetime of picking and choosing whether we're going to listen to God or not. Nor does the the true nature of faith allow for us to be easily pulled away from God as the world whispers in our ear, did God really? say. The true nature of faith is one that, as we've already mentioned, trusts completely. And when I mean completely, I mean completely, entirely in God, and therefore does what he says. Therefore, enduring faith, it necessitates obedience. Enduring faith necessitates obedience. The author now marches us through more examples of faithful obedience through the lives of Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. So now, first with Noah in verse 7. Noah's obedient faith allowed him to trust in God's warning that judgment by way of worldwide flood was coming. 
It's unclear how long it took Noah to build the ark, but you can bet that the building of the ark, when there was no sign of impending danger, was something that Noah was mocked for by the people in town. I had the opportunity a few years ago to visit the ark encounter in Kentucky with some friends. And the ark encounter, in case you don't know what that is, is a model of what the ark that Noah built could have looked like based on the measurements given by God in the Bible. And when we exited our van, and I looked out from the parking lots to the ark, I turned to my friends and I said, oh, if that's how big the real ark was, I can see why people thought Noah was crazy. Because it is huge. From the parking lot, you're just like, whoa, this thing is massive. And you think about this. Think about this. If all was calm in the world, right, you're building the boat literally in the middle of nowhere, Right, this boat is bigger than the body of waters that are surrounding it. It doesn't make any sense to build it, right? But the fact of the matter is, even though Noah was ridiculed, right, he didn't care what people said. He knew what God said. And he chose to obey God, which was a form of condemnation to the world around him as they mocked him. And it is because of Noah's faith in God and faithfulness to obey God that Noah became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. And this brings us now to Abraham. Abraham, verses 8 through 10. As you can see in verses 8 through 10, Abraham's obedience to God is seen first and foremost in God calling Abraham to leave his home country. And by faith in God, Abraham immediately obeyed when God told him to move for an inheritance that he would provide, that God would provide. And as you can see, as you glance over the verses, though Abraham moved immediately, Abraham did not receive the promises immediately. In fact, as you can see in verse 9, he was described as a sojourner in the land of promise. He wasn't a resident, he was still a sojourner. And even as his legacy goes beyond him, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Abraham and his descendants never received their full inheritance from God, but they trusted God. And it wasn't one moment of trust and obedience, but a lifetime marked by continual trust and continual obedience. Why? Because they knew God would make good on his promises. And this is why they were seeking a city which has foundations whose architect and builder, who's God. They weren't going to be satisfied with an earthly city that eventually gets old and crumbles, where the infrastructure is just not up to snuff and it eventually falls apart. They wanted what God promised, and so they obediently trusted in God and they waited upon God to fulfill the promises. And the same can be said of Sarah in verses 11 through 12. The fact that Sarah was able to have a child at all was one that required faith on her part. Now, as you, listened, as you recall the story, right, you remember that when she was told, or when she overheard that she was going to have a child by the, by the next year, what did she do? Did she say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I'm going to have a child? No, right? She laughed. She laughed. After all, she was 90 years old. And Abraham was 100 years old. 
And even back then, when lifespans were way longer than they are today, that was well beyond the age of childbearing years. But God promised. And eventually, despite that initial moment of laughter and unbelief, Sarah knew that she could trust God's faithfulness, that if he promised it, it'll happen. Therefore, Isaac was born. And as the author of Hebrews summarizes in verse 12, many more descendants would eventually come through Isaac and his descendants so that it can be said of all of Abraham's descendants that they were as many as the stars of the heavens and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And this all happened even though they were well beyond the childbearing years. They believed God. And they persisted in that belief in God. They did not give up, but continued to live in obedience to God because of their faith in God. But what fueled that endurance of faith, especially at what seems to be such a hopeless stage of their lives? It's future hope. Endurance is possible because of future hope. In verses 13 through 16, the author of Hebrews explains that the full payout of the promises was not given during the lifetimes of Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. Nor, by the way, is it fully paid out now. But, as the author already previewed for us in the example of Abraham's faith, Those who died in faith had their eyes focus on the promises that were yet to come. Notice in verses 15 through 16 that the author of Hebrews mentions that there could have been an opportunity for Abraham and his descendants to simply go back to what is comfortable. Or they had opportunity to return to their old country. You don't have to wait upon God to give you something that you don't know will come. You can just go back to what you already know. You have family back there. You already have land that belongs to your family name. You could have gone back to what's comfortable and what's familiar, but they don't. Why? Because they look forward to the full extent of what God promises. They're seeking a better country that is a heavenly one. And the full extent of what God promises in terms of a heavenly country, right, is not our idea, uh, is not our typical idea of heaven in the sky. If that was the case, the promise would have been fulfilled when the saints died and went to heaven. Right? There's no more waiting for an inheritance because once you die and you go to heaven to be with the Lord, then the promises are fulfilled. But the fulfillment of God's promise will be at that time when God brings heaven down to earth as we see in Revelation 21, and when he remakes everything to the way that it should be so that the full promises that God made to Abraham would be fulfilled. Now, this is a bit of an aside, but when we talk about fulfillment of promises, right, every promise that God makes, right, every aspect of that promise that God makes must be fulfilled in order for it to be considered fulfilled. If God's going to be faithful to keep all of his promises, then he needs to keep all of his promises. For example, if I said to you that I will provide each and every one of you, each and every one of you, with a Tesla Model X, and then I said, and then I said to you, oh, 
never mind. Let me give you a Hyundai. But not even the electric one. I gave you the Kona, the worst one. Could you say that I was faithful to keep my promise to you to give you a car? No, right? Because what did I promise you? A Tesla Model X. What did I give you? A lowly Hyundai Kona. Right? That's not faithfulness. And so if you look back to Genesis 15, and you look at the extent of what God promised to his people in the land, all of that needs to be fulfilled in order for God to be faithful. Yes, he provided blessing. Yes, he provided descendants. But that last part, the land part, that's not done yet. So we're still waiting. Right? Israel's still waiting. The fact that they have a land now doesn't mean that the promise is fulfilled. And so it all needs to be fulfilled. And that's why, even though they might have temporary residence in the land, they actually don't consider themselves. If you ask any, um, any Jew who really knows their Bible, you ask them if they're back in their homeland, even though they're living there, they'll tell you no. They'll tell you that they still are in exile. And they know that they're still in exile. They're still waiting for the rest of all of God's promises. So God is faithful, but the promises are still coming. The original audience of Hebrews were tempted to look for relief from their circumstances in their present moment, right right here, right now. What they wanted was comfort now. And if that meant leaving Christ and finding safe harbor in Judaism, so be it. But the author of Hebrews points to the patriarchs, the heroes of the faith, and he says, hey, wait a minute. If you want to be like them, if you want to be like the patriarchs, you can't leave. You can't leave Christ. You can't abandon your faith in God for something lesser because the patriarchs, your forefathers, they didn't do that. If you want to be like them, then you need to truly be like them and you need to persevere. They could have gone home. They could have sought immediate relief and got it. But they trusted God. And so they pressed on in their faith in him. The best is yet to come, so you must press on. You must believe in God and live in confident obedience because the reward will come. So continue to obey. Continue to endure. It will be worth it in the end. That's the message of the author of Hebrews to his audience and now to us as well, that we must endure in the faith. God will be faithful to fulfill all his promises. And our response is, in, is, is meant to be obedient trust in all things. This brings us to the third reason why believers can persevere in their faith in Christ. And that's because faith ultimately overcomes. Faith ultimately overcomes. How does faith ultimately overcome? It overcomes through trust in God. In rapid-fire succession, the author of Hebrews begins to show his readers why they can persevere in their faith, and he returns to the example of Abraham in verses 17 through 19. God promised Abraham that it would be through Isaac exclusively, right? Not through Ishmael, not through the other guy who lives in Damascus, but through 
Isaac. It would be through Isaac that the promise of innumerable descendants would be fulfilled. But then God tested Abraham to see how much Abraham would trust him by commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in worship. Now you have to remember, in Abraham's time, there is no precedent for God raising the dead. It's unheard of. It's not something that's even in their minds. So if Isaac is sacrificed and the promise of descendants hangs on Isaac and Isaac alone, then Abraham reasons, well, if Isaac dies, that means God must resurrect him from the dead. That's some pretty strong faith, right? That takes a lot of faith. Because if Abraham is wrong, it's all over. You can't come back from killing your son. Abraham left with Isaac in the morning. He goes back, and if he was wrong, if he was wrong and Isaac dies, he goes back home and Sarah says, hey, Abraham, where's Isaac? He's like, oh, (laughs) well, funny story. I thought that God would raise Isaac from the dead, so I killed him. And um, yeah, so now he's dead. That's what would have happened if his faith was wrong. But his faith wasn't wrong, right? His faith wasn't wrong. Now, for those of you who know the story, God never actually had Abraham sacrifice Isaac. Abraham passed the test. And and God provided a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, in Isaac's place. But the thing that we don't want to miss out here is that Abraham's faith allowed him to overcome selfishness. Allowed for him to overcome any kind of doubt that was there. It allowed for him to be willing to sacrifice. Abraham's faith allowed him to be willing to sacrifice. Many times in our faith, we want to combine trust in God with having whatever we want. We want to bring those two things together. But true faith also recognizes that sometimes, or sometimes we will be called to sacrifice what we want for God's purposes and for his glory. And the question that we face during those times is, Will we trust him? Or will you place your trust in him? Because true faith places our trust in him, no matter if we get what we want or not. That brings us to Isaac, verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Now, culturally, the older should be blessed first. Right? But Isaac knew from when the twins were in Rebekah's womb, that it was the younger who should be blessed. And throughout his entire life, Isaac tried to fight against this idea, which is why Esau was his favorite son. But eventually, he knew that the right thing to do was to bless Jacob first, which is why he never changed course. Now, you might object and say, yeah, but he was tricked. He was tricked into blessing Jacob first. Yeah, that's true. But he could have took it back, didn't he? Couldn't he have? He could have said, oops, never mind. You don't get the blessing. I will curse you instead, Jacob. Right? He could have done that. He didn't because he knew. Right? He knew that what he needed to do was to allow God's desire, not his own, to win out. Faith overcomes personal desire. It overcomes culture. It overcomes in order to obey God. That brings us to Jacob and Joseph. Verses 21 and 22. 
Just as it was with his father before him, Jacob gives a blessing to his grandsons, the younger before the older. And as he's about to die, he doesn't waver in worship or in faith in God. He keeps looking ahead to what is to come. And the same can be said of Joseph. Joseph was dying when he gave his last words to his brothers, but his faith in God did not waver. In fact, he anticipated the exodus before the exodus was even, before even the slavery was a thing. Or the slavery in Egypt was a thing. He anticipated the exodus. And so that's why he told the sons of Israel to bring his bones back to the land of Canaan because he knew that God is going to bring us home. And so when the time comes, you bring my bones home so that I can be with my fathers. He knew that. Faith overcomes the prospect of death, and it knows that death is not the end. That now brings us to Moses, verses 23 through 28. In Moses, we see how faith overcomes persecution and oppression. As we see how the faith that Moses' parents had led to their bold act of faith in hiding Moses from Pharaoh once he was born. And that eventually leads to Moses' rise in power and influence as he became the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, some would, of course, be tempted to be proud, but Moses' faith in God leads him to deny prestige and power, choosing instead to lose everything he has ever known or experienced, all for the sake of the better riches that will eventually await him from God. These riches, of course, will find their eventual fulfillment in Christ, but the point is that faith pushes Moses to faithfully trust that God will bring something better than Moses would ever experience in this life. This this kind of faith is remarkable, especially when you recognize that the riches that Moses would have access to as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, as a prince of Egypt, would have been significant. He could have whatever he wants. He's royalty. That's a lot. Would you give up that? For nothing? Or for a lack of payout now? To wander in the wilderness? Okay, he didn't know this, right? But to wander in the wilderness? Like, would you do that? No, of course not. Or you'd be like, I'd rather be comfortable. But Moses knew that God and his promises are far better. And so in faith, Moses leaves everything he's ever known behind to follow God. We now take a look at God's interventions throughout Israel's history in verses 29 through 31. Faith in God allows for Israel to overcome their obstacles. The Red Sea before them and the murderous army of Pharaoh behind them, Israel believed God and God delivers them safely through the sea and destroys their enemies. Faith in God also allows Israel to take down the mighty walled city of Jericho simply by by walking around the city seven times every day for seven days, and then they eventually yell at it, and then it falls down. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's good military strategy. At least set something on fire, right? At least blow something up. But no, they march around the city seven times a day, For seven days. And then they yell really loud, and then God brings the walls come crumbling down. And what does that point to? 
that Israel didn't win this by themselves, that God won it for them. He is their champion. He's the one who beat Jericho. And additionally, you know, if you rewind the tape just a little bit, it was by faith in God that the victory of Jericho was even possible. Right? Because you kill those two spies, it's all over. But in faith, Rahab, when she knows that these spies are from Israel and she has heard the reports of what God has done through his people to the mighty nation of Egypt, she's like, oh, I'm not going to fight against these people. I'm not going to fight against this God. I'm going to believe in this God. And because of that belief, she and her whole household live. And she gets to be a part of the line that eventually brings us King David. It's pretty incredible. But it's faith. Faith in God that does that all. In verses 32 through 35, we see an even quicker summary of what God has done on behalf of his people. As you look at verse 32... It's almost as if the author knows that he's quickly running out of time in his sermon, just like I am. And so, he summarizes real quick, and he says, take a look at all of these heroes of the faith. Take a look back at what God has done in our people's history. Faith in God is not worthless. It is why we are here today. Look at how God has intervened for us. Look at how he has protected us. Look at how God has fought for us. He can and will reward our faith in him. The author of Hebrews knows that God can overcome many obstacles on behalf of Israel. He's also not unaware, though, that this doesn't mean, that it doesn't always mean that suffering will be avoided. Verses 36 through 38. You know, naturally, when we think that God's blessing, or sorry, naturally we think that God's blessing and God's favor means that there's going to be no suffering in this life. Because that's the common hang-up that many have regarding the Christian faith, right? If God is so good, then why? And then fill in the blank. But you see, This is not a question about God's goodness. What people are asking for when they're asking that question is, where's God's grace? That's what they want. They want grace. God disciplining, God judging, that doesn't negate his goodness. It doesn't negate his goodness. God doesn't promise that we won't experience suffering in this life. Because suffering is a product of the fall. Persecution against God's people is a natural result of the world rejecting its maker. As Jesus reminded his disciples, we shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us because they hate him. And so, you know, for us this day, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that suffering and persecution are on the horizon. Because God said it was going to happen. God said it was going to happen. And so you can't put your hope and your faith in elections. You can't put your hope in returning 
to what our society once was. Because that puts our hope not in God and what lies ahead, but in what is comfortable. We can't put our hope in that. Our hope is in God and what he has promised will come. And it's not exactly entirely comforting, right? Because when we're hated, when people don't like us, when our livelihood is at stake, right? That doesn't feel great. But look at what happened to people who have placed their faith in God in the past, right? There's a lot of good victory that God, there's a lot of victory that God has, has brought about. There's a lot of good intervention, but sometimes he allows people to suffer as well. Right? There was mocking, there was flogging, and there was imprisonment, which, you know, if you think about it, it's not that bad. But, oh, wait, there's more. There were stonings. That doesn't sound too good for your health, right? Having large rocks lobbed at your body. It's not really good for your, for your livelihood. Right? There was at least one person sawn in two and not at a magic show for real, right? So there's no putting him back together. He died. Right? There's, there's those who were put to death by the sword, there was poverty. There were a lot of things that if we look at it on its face, we'd be tempted, yeah, faith in God's not worth enduring. Right? Those things, I, it's, it's just not worth enduring those things. Just to believe in God, not worth it. But look at God's evaluation of the suffering that his people go through in verse 38. The people who are mistreated, God says through the author of Hebrews that these people are people whom the worthy world was not worthy. These people are those whom the world is not worthy. The world is not worthy of God's saints. Those who place their faith in Christ, right, when we suffer, and we suffer for God's glory, not because we did anything wrong, right, but because of God's glory, right, we prove the overwhelming value and treasure of Christ. We prove that this world was never meant to be our home, was never meant to be our place of security. God is pleased when we trust him and when we trust him to the max, not trusting him 85% of the way, and then when he doesn't do what we want him to do, we take over. Right? Or 99.9% of the way, and then, uh, well, God, you didn't give me what I wanted, so... I'm going to take over. No, we trust him to the max, completely, completely. The saints of old overcame everything through faith in God in order to be faithful to God. Not necessarily for the promise of reward right here, right now, but they overcame everything so that they could continue to be faithful to God. He was the one who enabled them to endure. And he will be the one who continues to help believers endure until the fulfillment of his great plan, as we see in verses 39 through 38. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Why did some of the saints have to endure in the faith so much? Why did they have to persevere in their faith? 
Because God promised something better. And they believe that what he said he would give is far better than anything that we would receive now in this life. Also, just consider this humbling truth in verse 40. These saints of old, these heroes of the faith, did not receive everything that was promised at that time because God had provided something better for them? No. What does the text say? For us. For us. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Or another way that you can translate that is they would not be made complete. Let that sit for a bit. We often want to go back in time and live in another time to see what life was back then. Or to live in a society that doesn't seem to be as bad and as backwards as the one that we live in now. But if you think about it, this is not same thing that the saints of old want. They would much rather live now, in our time, when they can see the promises of God unfold. So don't don't take for granted all that God has given us now. They don't want to, the saints of old, they don't want to stay back where they are. They want to go to the future. And we should want that too. Because the future is where we get to be with God. That's the best place to be. Your life might be great now, but it's going to be way better when we're with God. And if you think that your life is terrible right now, and everything hurts, and everything is bad, it's okay. Because this is the worst that it's going to get. But what is better is yet to come. So the saints of old, they had to endure in faith because God had future saints in mind. And that applies to you and me right now. And if it's not yet time for Christ to return now, okay, that's fine. It applies to everyone who believes in God after us. We're talking about a legacy of faith in God and faithfulness to God that goes all the way back to Abel. And it continues on. Through the ages, God has proven himself faithful. He has proven himself trustworthy. And when the time is right, together we, along with all of the other saints throughout human history, will see God's promises fully fulfilled. Everything will be complete. Everything will be as God wants it to be. And this, brothers and sisters, this, is the God that you have placed your faith in. This is the end goal to his great salvation plan. And that is why you must persevere in your faith in Christ. Now, we may not be facing the same persecution and pressures that the original audience of Hebrews faced. But the temptation for us to be pushed away from faith in Christ due to trials, or pulled away from Christ due to distractions, they're very real. 
But what we've been reminded of over the last few weeks is that if it is true that God's righteous ones live by faith, then we must entrust ourselves completely to God. And we do that in our faith. And as we place our complete trust in him, no matter what we may encounter in our lives, then then we can endure in our faith by his grace. And empowered by his grace, we can persevere in our faith because we know that faith in Christ is not nothing, right? It pleases God. And not only that, but faith in Christ will fuel our ability to obediently endure. And we can do this because we have confidence that faith ultimately overcomes everything. Everything. Because God, the one in whom our trust is in, is absolutely faithful. So, no matter what you are going through this Christmas, know that faith in God, faith in Christ, it's absolutely worth it. Your endurance in the faith is not all up to you, which is why your faith can endure beyond Christmas, and it can endure beyond Easter, but it can reach through the rest of the year as well. And not just this year, but the next year, and the next year, till we go home. As we will see in a few weeks, our endurance in our faith is rooted in the fact that we have a great crowd of witnesses reminding us throughout the ages, not that you can do it, We like to often think of it as them saying that we can do it. That's not the case. What is this great cloud of witnesses doing as they're providing their testimonies for us? They're pointing us to Christ. And they're not saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. They're saying, Christ can do it. Christ can do it because Christ does it all. Christ does it all. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He doesn't start and stop and then forget about you. He'll be faithful to to complete it. He will bring us all the way home. And that is why we can and must endure. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, we are grateful that you are here with us. Now, I understand that faith in God might be foreign to you, but we ask you to consider what the Bible has to say. That our greatest need in life is the forgiveness of sin. And you can't do anything about that on your own. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, absolutely can provide that for you. And as we discussed this morning, even more because of his death on the cross and his resurrection. There is so much more to this life than what we see with our eyes. God is the rewarder of those who seek him. And this reward can be yours, and it can be yours today if you place your faith in him and repent of your sins. Now, before we sing our closing song, let me leave you with a few devotional considerations. Number one, what do we turn to first when times of trials arise in our lives, right? We would like to say Jesus. We would like to say God. We would like to say the Psalms, but let's be honest. What are those things that you turn to first? Number two, 
when times of trials or persecution arise in our lives, what are some truths that can comfort us and remind us to endure in our faith? And number three, how does knowing God's big picture plan of salvation encourage us to persevere in our faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you for your word and for how through it we have examples of saints who have placed their faith in you throughout the ages. And we've seen how you have helped them to endure by your grace through faith. And that faith is in you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to be with us, that you would continue to grow us in our faith so that we can also similarly persevere, so that we can join in with the cloud of witnesses to the generations that come after us to proclaim that Christ can do it all. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.